The text this morning is Luke. My Bible tends to, when it sits on this, this podium, this platform, it just opens right up to Luke. That's where we're at in our studies. So I've been, I'm spending a lot of time there. You hopefully have spent some time there reading. Uh, what we discover in chapter 19 at the beginning, uh, we read it last week, is the familiar story of uh, the wee little man, uh, Zacchaeus. And um, we're moving in this journey that Luke records toward uh, Jerusalem. So the, the text is going to be picking up in verse 11 is where we left off. And you can find it in the Pew Bible, the Black Pew Bible on page 878. You'll want it open. The Jews uh, generally and, and understandably uh, did not like the fact that this particular juncture in history, uh, the occupation, the oppression by the Roman authorities. Uh, they were not happy about that. And so when they heard promise and hope of Messiah, which was predicted way before that, uh, they would they would gladly welcome a political Messiah. And uh, that is exactly what Jesus was not. Uh, he was instead a suffering uh, Messiah. And so to quote uh, John 1, that the, the problem was that Jesus came to his own and his own rejected him for that and other reasons. They didn't see him as the fulfillment of those promises of a Messiah, a Redeemer. They also hated the fact that Jesus was a friend of sinners. And that's where Zacchaeus comes into the picture because last week Zacchaeus was uh, a sinner. You know, uh, not only that, he was, he was considered a traitor because he was, you know, he was... Uh, Gaining money by taking from his own people, the Jews, to pay taxes to, to Rome and to, to uh, the emperor. But Zacchaeus was a changed man. They didn't care for that either. Uh, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so it's even more bizarre and peculiar to people when at this juncture, and that's the rest of the gospel of Luke, that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem to ascend, to ascend not a throne to take a crown, but a cross that he might suffer and died. When is the kingdom going to come? Well, we know it came in part and uh, it will come in full. We talk about the kingdom as something of an entity, a, a reality that is both visible and invisible. It's something that is already uh, in, in its inauguration because Jesus is the king. And he, we've, we've read about it in the gospel of Luke and elsewhere. He cast out demons. He has power over nature. Uh, he has power over sickness and illness as he heals diseases. We get these glimpses of the king and the kingdom, his mercy and his might. But we also see that there's a kingdom that is not yet uh, in its consummation, in its fullness. And Jesus clarifies when we look forward to the kingdom to come, which Jesus spoke of even after his death, resurrection and ascension. When Jesus comes back, uh, we know uh, well, when when that question is always the question. When is Jesus coming back? Well, we don't know. And Jesus makes abundantly clear uh, in places like uh, Matthew, the gospel of Matthew 24, that there will be at that season, that season prior to his coming will be marked with tribulation. With trouble, with problems, a, a protracted season of tribulation and troubles in our world. There will be uh, that, that discourse that he preaches in Matthew 24. There will be, he says, wars and rumors of wars in the last day. Nation will rise against nation and there will be famines and there will be earthquakes. Oh, sounds like USA Today. I, I, we could read about that. But the truth is it's sounded that way ever since. We're still living in that season between his ascension and Jesus return when the kingdom is in full. Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about when because even Jesus himself says he doesn't know. But how, how he will return as the son of God and the king of the universe will be with glory. 
and with power and with an army of angels. So obvious, the boom we've read of this and uh, this gospel, it will be so bright, undeniable that it will light up the sky in such a way uh, that we'll be overcome with his glory. And he'll gather people. He is gathering, not will. He is presently gathering people from every tongue, tribe and nation uh, to to know him and to worship. So then. So what? If that's the case, so. So what? What's, what's the point? Well, the point, again, time and again, is that we would be uh, conscientious, that we would be ready, that we would be prepared for when uh, the king of the universe does return again, as he so clearly promised. Some of the parables that we have read already, because we're going to read another one, some of them have talked about it as if the kingdom is, uh, is soon to come. And then there's other times when you read a parable, you get the impression that the kingdom is, is way far off. Well, there's pitfalls and dangers to thinking both those, but I just would encourage you to think about it in general, that we would be a people who are ready and who stay ready for his coming again. But much like elsewhere in this parable, Jesus wants to to refine and to recalibrate, to refocus our thinking and some of our assumptions, even to correct some of our false assumptions. And this is what he takes up in this parable. This is the last parable before he goes into uh, his Passion Week. If you just glance ahead in the context, you'll see that. This is the last parable that Luke records of Jesus' ministry. I know you just sat down. I invite you to stand again as we show respect for God's word. Beginning verse 19, excuse me, verse 11 of chapter 19. Hear this, the word of God. And as they heard these things, he, that is Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore... A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then and then return, calling ten of his servants. He gave them ten uh, minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. That he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first, verse 16, came before him saying, Lord, uh, your mina uh, has made ten mina more. And he said to him, well done. Well done, good servant. Because you, have, you, sh- because of, you were faithful with very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, uh, your mina has made five, meet five minas. And he said to him, are you going... Uh, And you are going to be over five cities. Then another came. Lord, here is your mina, which I laid away in a handkerchief. uh, For I was afraid because you were a severe man. Uh, You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was uh, you knew that I was a severe man. That I would take and I did not deposit and reap what I did not sow. Why then did you put my money in the bank? Why didn't you put my money in the bank and come that I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, uh, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, referring to the citizens, not the servants, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. So join me, please. Uh, We do join our hearts and minds, uh, our posture in prayer, because we're asking that you would help us, uh, that you'd help us to learn to know you better. And we do thank you for your word that you've chosen to reveal yourself uh, through things, even puzzling, mysterious things like parables. Please work. Uh, Would you make this book alive to me uh, and to all of us in our hearts and minds? In Jesus' sufficient name. Amen. I was a teenager back in the 90s, and uh, even the, the opening song that we sung reminded me of being a teenager in the 90s and, and singing uh, that, uh, that song. Two stories that stand out in the 90s when I was a teenager. One was a guy that uh, was near to my age, and his name is uh, Michael Fay. Anyone know who Michael Fay is? Y'all, you're going to remember in just a second here. I, th- I think you got your suspicions. Michael Fay was an American teenage boy. I think he was about 19 at the time. And he was living in Singapore. And he decided that it would be a fun, good idea uh, to go on about a week-long, you know, just rampage of vandalism. And uh, you know, he, he, he got caught. And, uh, and he pled guilty. And he was tried. Uh, and the Singapore government decided that he would spend a little bit of time in prison and a, little, uh, and a pretty you know, decent-sized fine, and that he would also be caned. That he would be, uh, this is a, a, a robust way of, of, of calling what the Bible says, a spanking. Uh, a good thing, but it was a pretty severe form of, of, uh, of caning, of, of corporal punishment. He was, he was sentenced to six lashings of the cane. And, uh, and so the American media just erupted. His family erupted. Uh, he erupted. Uh, he said, I wouldn't have pleaded guilty. I mean, there was a whole story that surrounded all this. And people were taking sides. It was a lot of chaos. Uh, in the end, they, they reduced it down to four canings. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of people just said, even, even I think at the time President Clinton was involved with it. It was just a big uh, to do. But a lot of people realized, you know what? Um, this is, this is the hard reality of life. When you make choices, you don't get to choose the consequences sometimes. You don't get to choose the judge. You don't get to say, I think I'd rather be tried in an American court than a Singapore court. This is where you committed the crime. And that sovereign nation has every single right uh, to punish him according to their laws, which were clearly uh, laid out. The standards of judgment, I mean, we read a passage like this and we say, what, what is Jesus talking about? Accountability and the severity of, of judgment here. Well, that's not our place to say. It, we don't get to make the law. We don't get to choose the judge. Although I think at the end you'll agree with me, I would rather have Jesus as my judge. It leaves us uncomfortable. He has that right the other thing I was going to mention is the fact that even back in the 90s, the American culture was pretty fractured and political. You know, it was, it was polarized, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in different groups. My hometown, it seemed almost worse because uh, there really were like, like two distinct groups, it felt like. And sometimes they would have battles. And of all places, they would do it on the back of cars with bumper stickers. And I remember seeing bumper stickers that were all pro-Bush, pro-God, and pro-gun, and pro-this. And, and usually it was on a Chrysler minivan. Or, 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 you know, a Ford pickup truck. And then there would be another group. There'd be, there'd be this, there'd be this other group that would have a bumper sticker that would say something, you know, to critique this other group. And they would have a bumper sticker that might, you know, say something about the environment or, or, or world peace. And, and then, the, and then, and then they have some other left agenda. One of them said, uh, look, one of them would have like on the, the, the far right would say something about the rapture and, and Christianity. And, and then another group would say, this one would say, Jesus is coming back, look busy. On the back of a Subaru. And um, 
No offense to any Ford or Subaru owners here, but you know we're just you know we're just kind of flowing with the, the, the overgeneralization of that polit- you know, those 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 polar opposites and everything. Folks, this is not a parable. We grapple with this. This is not a parable that is about productivity or just looking busy because Jesus is coming back or or getting people to agree or disagree with us. This is about really studying as we think about a suffering, not a political Messiah, but a suffering Messiah, what he's called us to do until he comes again. And to to take that to heart in a a profound way, there are some questions that I've laid out for us to consider because every time we come to God's word, while we do live in a cultural context and a moment, it's always fitting that we would be asking the question, what is the the meaning of this to its original context? And what is the message for us today? And then who is Jesus? That's always in view. So to help us today, I've just outlined here, what is the master or the nobleman here, the nobleman in the parable? What is the nobleman's expectation? The second question is, what's the servant's assumption? And then the last is, what will be our motivation? So this first question, uh, what's the master's expectation? First of all, let's try to gain some understanding in the historical context that they would have understood it. Verse 12, when this is, uh, this is told to them, he said, therefore, a nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return. What, what does that register for them? Well, that wouldn't have been just entirely uh, you know, ethereal. That would, that would have had some... Uh, something that they would not have missed. We miss it. We don't understand. But they would have surely understood it. That under Roman uh, political uh, reign uh, with the capital of that, that empire, of course, being Rome, there were times when a nobleman would be, uh, would be sent. A regional authority would have to go to Rome from time to time to validate uh, some of their authority. In fact, even with the, with the death uh, of, uh, of Herod, Herod the Great and his son, uh, there's, there's these two noblemen that, uh, that were sent. And, and like here, there's, this, this, there's a mention of a nobleman on a journey back to Rome. What would also maybe happen once they went to meet with the imperial uh, you know, government and the, the, uh, the emperor uh, was to recognize the claims that they have over that region and to be king. There might be a separate delegation that came and petitioned the, uh, the emperor to say, no, we don't want him. Uh, to be reigning over us. And so that's what's you know, kind of in view here that Jesus is saying they would have had a reference point to think about that. In the parable, the king uh, here uh, is, to, is to, be, uh, to be Jesus. The, the nobleman is the citizens are those who are the object of, uh, you know, that are in view here are Israel who by and large reject Jesus. The servants in the parable Uh, At least two out of the three are the followers of Jesus. The master, uh, the nobleman comes and says, here's what I'm going to do for those who are the servants. uh, There's ten. We're only given mention of three of them. I mean, that gives us enough of a of a window into the scenario. We don't have to talk and hear from all of them, but three of them represent the whole. Here's the three. Everyone gets this one uh, mina. A mina, by the way, is a, is a monetary figure that would have, uh, would have been approximately uh, a drachma, which is a 100 days wages, an average wage uh, during that day. That's a pretty decent amount of money. That's probably bigger than the, than the stimulus check that some of us got uh, during uh, the lockdowns, remember? So here it is. They get this money. What do they do with it? Well, what does he expect first? The nobleman says that he's going to give this to them, but he expects 
And he anticipates that upon his return, they will be exposed. They will be revealed. They will be exposed and revealed, the true servants, because he expects them what? He expects them to be faithful, to be responsible, to be diligent, even to take risks. They are to manage his resources. It's not their money, it's his money, and he wants to see what they will do. Notice that the master uh, grants to two of the servants the same, both the one uh, with the ten at the end, the one with the five. Um, he, he grants to them the same commendation and, uh, and compliment. He clarifies that some are given much and others are given less to work with. And I, I just say that's, that's an encouragement to us, frankly, in the end. Because God knows all of our circumstances. He knows what he's entrusted to us, our, their world, our world. In our world, what we have, God has given us. Whether it, is, whether it is our resources or whether it is our trials. And some of you may say, yeah, a lot of those are trials. And some of you may say, well, the Lord hasn't given me a hundred days uh, wages. That hasn't shown up in my bank account. No, but he has given us our daily bread. In fact, he's given us a great deal more than this. He's given us gifts, graces, the gifts, the raw abilities, talents, musically, intellectually, physically, vocationally, even spiritually. And then he's given us graces as his followers, as his servants. Romans 12 clarifies, for as in one body we are many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. So that's what we're responsible. That's what we're accountable to. Some of you have more opportunities. You've had uh, more mentors. You've had more training, perhaps more resources. Some of you have experienced more difficulties. More stressful vocations, more demanding children, more painful circumstances with your family, more weaknesses than others. It's not a value judgment at all. It's an observation. I think we understand. The Lord, our maker and our redeemer, knows this and he wants us to use it and use it all well. Even if it is our trials and our weaknesses, because even for those who have opportunities, there's this, 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 this unique avenue for dependence upon Christ and dependence upon the body of believers, giving blessing and serving one another. It's an opportunity for, for ministry, for compassion and love and care. Well, what is the, the servant's assumption here? There's, there's three that are highlighted, like I said, but what are their assumptions? He's expecting to expose them, the nobleman and the master, and to commend to them a, a particular posture. But what is their expectation, their assumption? Well, the first operating assumption is at the very beginning, and it's the basis of the parable. They assumed that the kingdom of God, look at verse 11 again with me, they, because he's telling the parable because he's heading to Jerusalem, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear Immediately. So this is part of the purpose of the parable is to correct a false assumption. Again, they wanted a political Messiah. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to be a suffering Messiah. They wanted Jesus to take power and to reverse the oppression. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going that way. I, I'm, he's, I'm going to Jerusalem for a different purpose. 
Now, I'm, I'm not, he's, he, Jesus is saying, I'm not, I'm not going to Jerusalem. I'm going to heaven and I'm coming back. I'm not, I'm not going to, to Rome to get validation. I'm coming, you know, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. The first two servants of the parable are wise. In his time away, they, it, we don't, we're, not, we're not told how long it was, but it was enough to make a, a pretty decent return. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how the market was then. I mean, it's not great now, but I mean, they, he helped, one of them took and, you know, 10X'd it. I mean, way to go. That's, 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 that's awesome. Their commendation is the same. Both of them, uh, the, the two first servants that are mentioned here, uh, they're good managers. They invest, they take risks, and their commendation is the same in verse 17 and verse 19. Well done. They're approved. They're granted even more privileges. They're granted uh, more responsibilities. They're rewarded. And in a, a similar parable, it's not the precise same one, but in the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded that, um, that they, they experienced joy. Matthew 25, his master said to them, <clears throat> excuse me, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into, I love this phrase, Jesus says, enter into the joy of your master. So that's what they discover. So if it's the, if it's the minas of, of gifts, right, like, like physical monetary material wealth, or the gifts of teaching, which many of you have, or generosity, or compassion, or listening well, administrating things, your time, your energy, Jesus is commending to us, don't hoard it. Don't, don't stuff it away. Invest it. Give it away. It will be a risk to you. Yes, but it is worth it. I know it's very counterintuitive to think that way. It's even paradoxical, but God is pleased with them. And he blesses that approach and posture. In contrast, the third servant who gets the most attention here as Luke records it and as Jesus teaches the parable, the third servant uh, in the story in answering to the nobleman is labeled a wise, excuse me, a foolish, a, a wicked, lazy servant. He assumes that the master is only out to use them selfishly. Do you understand? Does that make sense? Like he just says, I'll just, in the, in the other parable that's similar to this in Matthew, he just goes and he buries the treasure. Here he just takes it and just wraps it up and he puts it away. Side note, when do you find people to be the most creative? When are people the most creative? Thank you. Very good. Is it when they have the most sleep? When they have gotten just the right mix of caffeine in their bloodstream? Right? Probably true. I, I'm better in the morning, you know? Uh, when are you most creative? When you feel affirmed? Yeah. No, people are the most creative when they're caught, when they're confronted, when they have a problem. Here's the problem. The king's back and the the citizens who sent that other group to say, don't make please, emperor, do not make him king. He comes back and he's the king. And he has nothing to show except this. Well, the same thing he he was entrusted with. 
Well, he didn't make it a true daily double, uh, and, uh, and uh, this is not working out well for him at all. Verse 21, he gets creative. It's kind of a weird blend of like insults and excuses here in verse 21. Look at it. Lord, verse 20, another came and said, Lord, here is your mina, which I've laid away and kept in a handkerchief for... He could probably see the displeasure on his face. Verse 21, what does he say? I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you have not deposited and you reap what you did not sow. What's his rationale? What's his thinking? He assumed that if he toiled and worked with that, the master would selfishly take it away. And he assumed that if he failed, then he would be punished. So it wasn't worth the risk. He just assumed it was a lose-lose situation. The safe way is just to hide it. There you go. If God takes it away, my friends, it's only a gift in the first place. And indeed, it does belong to God. But the parable demonstrates and proves that the master, our God, is generous. He's not hard. The third servant has a wrong assumption about the master. He was fearful and given to self-preservation and protection. He couldn't imagine that he was wrong and that he should possibly take any risks. And he is correct in one sense, and he's condemned, beginning in verse 22. I will, what, is the, what does the nobleman say? I'll condemn you with your own words. Which, by the way, was not Jesus saying, I agree with your critique of me that I'm hard and severe. No, that's not Jesus saying that at all. He's just saying, fine. That's what you assumed. We'll just keep heading in that trajectory and direction. And you as well will be cast into condemnation with that big group of enemies that I had because you clearly don't know who I am. Verse 27, go with them. Why was he cast off? He was a servant. He was entrusted with something. Why is he cast off? Is it because he didn't produce? Is it because, because he was, a, uh, he, he was a, a fearful hoarder? If if you're awake, hopefully you are. Here's my main thing I want you to take away. Here's the clear, obvious thing when it comes to that third servant. It was not because he didn't produce. It's no. The reason that he's cast away is because he doesn't know the master. He doesn't know the character of God. Because if he'd known the master, he would have invested and he would have produced fruit. Do you today have a distorted view of the master? Are you withholding things in fear and self-interest? Maybe, maybe not. Or maybe it's the other way. Maybe it's that you do assume that he is hard. And you say, I've been working really hard. God's hard. I'm, I'm severe. I'm going to work and God's going to owe me. And that's not true either. We need to know God rightly. To know God, to have an accurate, an accurate view of God. A God who who desires that we would enter his kingdom and the nobleman's joy and to know of his love and generosity. I know some of you may say, well, he hasn't been generous to me because all I've gotten is hardships and difficulties in life. I'm sorry that right now you can't see his mercy I pray that you will. I do. 
But there might be even more hardships. I'm not going to say, oh, well, there's, that was for a season. That's in the past. No, there might be very well more hardships. I certainly do not know. But I want to receive them for me personally. I want to receive them as opportunities to trust God. Because I know that he's filled not only with power, but also mercy. And I want to take and I want you to take the talents that God has given you and to seize opportunities to love and to serve and to give and to pray. To take initiative with people. In ministry. Because of the master's gifts, because of his love, because of his compassion. So I'm kind of already weaving in all this application, but I want to take up this last question, which is really about our motivation to do it. So here's my last question. What will be our motivation if that's their false assumption? Some of them, some of them made the right assumption. Some of them had the right working assumption, but some did not. And if we do have the right one, what will be our motivation to do what? To do what? Well, to heed the king, to befriend the king, to serve the king and his interests faithfully, even, even with perseverance and patience, because it's, it seems like a long time. Until he returns. What will be our motivation? Two things. The fear of God and the love of God. Both of those things. The fear of the Lord. That may seem like a strange thing. Because if you recall, it was back, you know, with the third servant. He said, I was afraid. That's why he didn't do it. I was afraid of you. But the reason he fears is a self-referenced fear. Does that make sense? Like, I'm going to lose. He has a false view of God, and he has a protective, self-seeking posture. I'll just paralyze, I'll, I'll hold on to that resource, instead of a holy, reverent fear of God, which says, God, you are God, and I am not. He has the authority. This time, this This knowledge that I have, these resources that I have, they belong to him. My life is his and I want to serve him because I'm going to be held accountable someday. That's true for every single last one of us, like it or not. You will be held accountable, not according to what you did not have, but what you did. What all of us have. So it is the fear of the Lord that motivates us. A right view. A holy reverent fear. Not, not, not fear sometimes as you would imagine. But to stand in awe of who God is. And his role. His good character. The second thing I would say that motivates us is the love of God. Both the love of God the Father and of God the Son. Not just the power of the King. And, and tremble over that. But the pleasure of the father, the citizens and the ones and the one servant who had the wrong assumptions. Their false view of God, they know the master's power, but not his wisdom. They they don't know his joy. They don't know his goodness. They don't know his generosity. I know some of you saw my parents were here last weekend um, visiting from North Carolina. And, And over the years. Uh, That's usually so often, uh, always is a a sweet, encouraging time. I don't get a whole lot of attention when they're here. Uh, That's okay. My kids do. Uh, That's the whole point, right? That's that's the magnetic force that brings 
grandparents into town. And I'm cool with that, right? (laughs) Some of you are identifying. Good, good. So here it is. They get to see, my parents are tremendous. They see our choices, our, 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 our parenting, our work, our ministry. They love so many of you in this church. They know you. They pray for you. Krista's parents too. On a couple of occasions, more than one, when I take my parents back to the airport, my dad has said to me, son, I'm proud of you and what you're doing. cherish those words but they don't even compare to what I want to hear from the heavenly father someday well done good and faithful servant enter your master's joy it's the pleasure of a father a heavenly father who's loved me even more than my earthly father and not only that it's the love not only of God the father but God The son, it's significant because sometimes we feel we've been poor stewards. We know we have. We've tripped. We've we've fallen. We're ashamed. The ways that I know I've squandered and spoiled away in my sin and unbelief. But still God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, to show us his love. A love that drove him to identify with our sufferings, even to the point of death on a humiliating cross as he's beaten and mocked and shamed. Far worse than any of us could imagine. In our place, as our substitute, Jesus was cast into into condemnation himself in our place so that we can enjoy the light of the presence of the love of God the Father and his forgiveness. Those are just some of the motivations in the gospel that indeed there are many more that we could meditate on that would compel us to take risks, to step outside of our comfort zone, to, to, to take the time, to take the money, to take the, the resources, the gifts, the abilities that we have and to serve the king and the kingdom and his purposes. Are you ready for his return? Do you possess a true and genuine affection for Christ as Lord? Not of one but, or two, but of every area of your life. Is there something, if you were to be honest, is blocking your surrender, your relationship, your understanding of this king? Well, then I say to you, I say to every one of us, frankly, repent and turn and believe to take refuge in Christ. He will redeem you. He will cleanse you. He will transform you and thank God, even me from within. And he will use us as his servants. That's not a burden. It's a blessing. It really is. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that we can trust you more. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that you're coming again. We pray it would be soon, frankly, that you would... Glorify your son, that you would reverse the curse, that you would make all things right and all things new, that you would shower mercy and justice. I pray you'd help everyone here to uh, examine 
where they are to seek you, to seek to know you and have a right relationship with you because they have a right understanding of who you are, God, worthy of our fear and yet worthy of our trust and our love and affection and devotion. Would you help everyone here? We want to have clarity about who you are. We want to have energy to do what you've called us to do. Regardless of what talents you've given us or what trials you've given us, help us to invest. So that we might at that final day, standing with Christ's merit, his robe of righteousness around us, that we would be spent and done. And you would say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I do pray for our congregation that when and as hardships come, we'll draw near to you and we'll draw near to those around us who need it. Lord, I thank you for, I want to pray specifically uh, for the ministry of Bethesda House today. And I ask that you would bless their ministry in every way that they need so they could continue to minister and love on vulnerable mothers and, and unborn children and children who, uh, who are born and who are, are infants and toddlers. Lord, would you please shower mercy and provide for this ministry that we partner with. Lord, I do pray for Christian ministries abroad today, especially those like Samaritan's Purse who labor to bring relief and mercy to people in Turkey and Syria. Have mercy. Thank you for giving us, Lord, our daily bread. And we are reminded of that even now as we pray in Jesus' name and as he taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We invite you to stand as we respond in song.
this Lord's good word over us. Now, may the Lord keep you from all harm. May he watch over your life. May he watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.